Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be back with you again this morning. As Peter says, we're in this series that we've been doing through since January all the way through the Scriptures, and we've dealt with so many topics, and it's all been quite fascinating to try and draw the whole of the Scriptures, which sometimes can seem very scattered and we wonder how it all fits together. Hopefully over these months we've tried to just bring things uh, together. And we've got this morning um, the, the title From Jerusalem to the Ends of the Earth and it's the book of Acts. You know, if you read through Acts it talks about all sorts of men and some women as well just starting in Jerusalem and going, well, to the ends of the earth. And uh, it's the other historical book of the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, which tell us about the life of Jesus and the twelve disciples and all sorts of other people as well. And uh, Luke comes along and he adds this Acts of the Apostles. And he actually witnessed some of the things. When you read through Acts, sometimes he says, they did this, they did that, they went there. Luke wasn't at that bit. He was just writing about what he'd heard from someone else. But then in other parts of Acts, he says, we did this, we went there, we spoke here, we did this. And Luke was actually there as an eyewitness. And uh, that is so important. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus has ascended. The Holy Spirit has come. What happens next? Well, Jerusalem bus station. Perhaps the bus says to the ends of the earth. I doubt it. It's probably only going as far as the next uh, stop. But anyway, how does it all end? The Holy Spirit has come. That's what we were thinking about last week when Peter uh, preached on the coming of the Holy Spirit. He sends his people out on all sorts of journeys. You don't need a bus pass, although it's useful. I can tell you how useful a bus pass is. Can you get up to the ends of the earth? Well, you might get to Land's End eventually, or the John O'Groats. I know I've read of people who've done that on a bus pass, and it takes quite a few weeks these days. But we're going even a wee bit further. Some of you may know I worked in a missions office some years ago, and a friend of mine and I spent a few coffee breaks inventing mission titles. Some of them were rather odd, I tell you. It was just the kind of uh, thing we did on our coffee breaks. And the favourite one was up, up and up. wonder what on earth that meant. Well, if you turn on to the next slide there, we came up with this one. Unreached peoples, unevangelised provinces and uttermost parts. Well, it was the kind of mission language we used to use a few years ago and these titles move on and of course it was all fictional but although there was never a mission agency called that the true picture in Acts is something like that and in Acts 17 and verse 6 when the apostolic team with Paul uh, are there and preaching others don't like it very much and they say they rush to Jason's house in search and they're, they're saying these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here they have turned the world upside down see we like our routines don't we you know we get into a habit of just ordinary life and then suddenly these Christians come into the picture oh isn't that terrible <laughs> some people thought it so Others found it a marvellous thing. A man who was a jailer, who found his daily routine was in the grim darkness of a prison. And suddenly, in the midst of an earthquake, God speaks. Paul and his companions are there singing songs in praise to God. 
and this jailer finds his life transformed, turning the world upside down. You know, it feels like our world's turning upside down at the moment for all the wrong reasons. Here in Acts, it's getting perhaps turned the right way up. Doesn't matter which term you use in a sense, but reality is that the scenario in Acts can so apply today because the Holy Spirit is at work. You see, it's all been part of God's plan and purpose. God reaching out to the world. You see, it's not a new thing. See, when John recorded that Jesus said in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, it wasn't that that was kind of a, a new idea of John or even Jesus. It's part of the ongoing program that God has for this world. It didn't even begin with that first text on the screen in Genesis 12, but that was one of the keystone points when God says to Abraham, I will bring you a family, I will bring you children, but I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. Not just the Jewish descendants, although God had a special purpose for them, but it would overflow every generation, every place, even when we somehow colonize Antarctica, and there are a few people down there. You know, God can be, and I trust is, at work in those difficult places. And there was Jonah, who was commissioned to go to Nineveh. Nineveh, he says, not that awful place. That's a pagan place. And he was one of those who kind of drew his coat around him and said, you know, we're, we're a bit different. We're a bit different than those people over there. And he didn't want to go. And he went the opposite way until a fish swallowed him up and rejected him. And Jonah does go to Nineveh and preaches God's word, repent, and the whole of Nineveh, this pagan people, come to follow God. And Jonah is aggrieved at that, because God is concerned for that great city. That's almost one of the last verses in the book of Jonah, Jonah 4, verse 11, where God says to Jonah, you're concerned about these little things, I'm concerned for this people. You know, God looks at all these nations of the world, these that are in anguish at the moment, and he also looks at those who are perpetrating the anguish, and he is concerned for all of them. He doesn't condone the unrighteousness, he doesn't condone the violence, he doesn't condone the, the, the terrible things that are going on, but he wants to reach into people's lives. This is why Jesus came. And Joel, another prophet, some years later prophesied that the Holy Spirit of God would come. Joel 2, 28-32. And what happens on, in Acts 1 and Acts 2, the very first chapters there of Acts, how did Acts actually begin? It begins on that day of Pentecost when Peter stands up and quotes all that goes on on that day of Pentecost. It's because God said, I will bless this world. At first, all the nations are coming into Jerusalem. It's the Pentecost feast day, a regular uh, activity, a regular thing every year. But suddenly, God's Spirit comes, outpoured on the disciples. Right. Lovely stuff. Thank you very much. Okay, yes, there we were. And in Acts, and you can see, hopefully a little bit on the screen, that all these people 
had come into Jerusalem, as they probably did most years. But suddenly the Holy Spirit comes and Peter and the other, well, there's 120 of them in that upper room when the Holy Spirit comes, and they start preaching and proclaiming the Word of God to all of these people. These people have come to the, from the far parts of the, of, the, of the world there, all those various provinces. And they, and, they, and they start talking amongst themselves. What does this mean? They can't understand what is going on. And Peter tells them. He says this fulfills the prophecy of, of Joel and commands everyone everywhere to repent. What shall we do, they say? What shall we do? Well, repent and be baptized, says Peter. Those are the two great questions of the day of Pentecost. What does it mean? We tell them. What shall we do? Repent and be baptised. You know, if, if, if the churches worldwide would just be enabled to bring to mind those two questions and provide the answers, God's blessing would flow so well. People saying, what's going on? Are our churches exciting enough? Are groups of Christians meeting together so exciting that we say, what does this mean? And when we supply the answer that God's Spirit is at work, people say, what shall we do and come to faith in Christ? The book of Acts is a three-part story. We can't hope to describe everything in Acts there's two home groups within this church who have been studying Acts for the past six or seven months. Say, guys, we're going to be here a long time this morning if we do that. <laughs> and apologies to those house groups if what you hear this morning you've heard it all before. Yeah, we've been there. Acts 1 to 12 deals with those initial people, Peter and John and Barnabas and Stephen and Philip, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, don't like it much and try to stop it all, but they just, the others, Peter and John and everyone, keep on preaching in spite of the persecution. Acts 13 to 20 brings the new kid on the block, and there is Paul, Saul of Tarsus, as he was, and starts with his missionary journeys all around uh, with Barnabas and Timothy and Silas and Mark and others. And the last part deals with Paul's more restricted ministry uh, where he's held under house arrest and in trial. Can't hope to visit everything in that. I just picked two or three things that occurred. And in the opening part, let's just turn into Acts chapter 8. And if you've got a Bible, follow it to there. And this is before Paul became what came on the scene. And uh, here we have an Ethiopian visitor. The day of Pentecost's come and gone. This is sort of like a, a few years, a little bit further on. But already Philip, who is one of those evangelists, he is seeking to do God's will. And an angel speaks to him. And says, go south to the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candice, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in the chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go up to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he asked, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So this man is a high official in Ethiopia. Now country boundaries change over the years and Ethiopia's certainly has so it's not exactly the same on a map today as it was as it was then but never mind this man 
had been to Jerusalem to worship, even though he's a foreigner, even though he's a Gentile, he is a God-fearer. He's got sympathy with the idea of there being only one God. He's a seeker. And perhaps this scroll of Isaiah that he's reading is probably a souvenir that he's bought. You know how it is when, when you visit a special place? If you go to the Holy Land today, don't we come back laden with all sorts of souvenirs and pictures and texts, some of them thrust into our hands by those uh, uh, little guides who come around and, uh, you know, they want a little bit of money for them, of course. Yeah, but so here was this man with the scroll of Isaiah the prophet and here he is reading from Isaiah 53 and he can't understand it doesn't know what it means. And remember a few couple of weeks or so ago, we talked about Christ's resurrection and how the Lord himself explained the scriptures to those two on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus also promised the Holy Spirit to do the same thing for all of us and prayed that that would happen. And if you read through John chapter 17, sorry, John 16, Verse 13, the spirit of truth guides us into all truth. You know, when we're witnessing for Christ, we need the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, to guide us into all truth. He is there with us. And when Philip begins to speak, the spirit just enables him to communicate what it's all about. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Who is this about? And beginning at that self-same scripture, the word says, he's preached the good news about Jesus. You see, we tell what we know. This is what Peter was talking about last week. We talk about what we know. How much do we know about the things of God? What we do know can be prompted by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth who guides and prompts us, takes, teaches us these true things. So here is this man, this this Ethiopian official, very high up in the country, finding out that God loves the world and him. You see, because of his physical condition, he could not actually worship in the temple. As a eunuch, that was not allowed in the Old Testament rules. Can you imagine then perhaps his joy as after he is baptized, becomes a Christian, perhaps he weeds on in Isaiah's prophecy and he comes into chapter 56 And he finds there that God welcomes him. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. Wow. You know, this man who, because of physical conditions imposed on him by others, found himself frustrated, becomes a Christian and finds that God is going to bless him anyway. I don't know how we stand these days. You know, some of us can face all sorts of difficulties in life and we think that we are downtrodden or we're bound or circumstances have bound us and it's just impossible for us to get any further. And we feel down in our lives. And then God comes along and invades our lives, and he puts us into a special place where his blessing and promises abound and set us free. You see, that's part of what Acts is all about. It's about God being at work through his people to bind up the brokenhearted, to liberate the captives. Are you captive this morning? Are you captivated in the wrong kind of way to things that bind us down? God can set us free. 
And the Spirit of God just wants to work away in your life and mine for that. The events of Acts demonstrate God's willingness to accept all who will hear the gospel and acknowledge Jesus, whatever status in society they might be. Let's move on, and, and we follow now in Paul's footsteps into a capital visit. See, here comes Paul. He's being converted on the Damascus Road. He spends a few years thinking about the gospel in various places. But now, as he begins to preach God's word, we find him in Athens. Athens, the capital of culture in those days. That was the place to be. And he's spending a few days in Athens waiting for his companions to come. And he's more or less like a tourist. You find the story in Acts chapter 17 and uh, he had to get there because it seems troubles follow Paul around. Wherever he goes, wherever he preaches, riots are stirred up. And uh, he was in Thessalonica and the trouble followed Paul there. He was not deterred by any of it. Once he wrote, I die daily. (laughs) Well, can you imagine that? I don't know whether any of us, if we're involved in any kind of Christian ministry or just being a Christian, would say, I die daily? Really? I just live in an ordinary country. Well, Paul went through all sorts of circumstances. Trouble did seem to follow him around. But here in Athens... Well, he, he, he wanders around and he's amazed at all the pagan gods there are. Of course, Athens and Greece was really the home of all sorts of strange religions. They've all passed us by now, probably. They've all had their place in history. Nevertheless, there they were. We replaced them with other gods these days in different ways. But here is Paul, and eventually he gets up to speak in one of the places where lots of people discuss all the new ideas. And they're keen to hear what Paul has to say. You've got this new idea. What's it all about? You people, you people, the Jews, you've got some special new idea. Who is this Jesus that you're talking about? Hmm. And uh, Paul begins there. And he says... I saw in your city this idol to the unknown God. And this is the God I'm going to talk about. And he does so. And he preaches Jesus, who's risen from the dead. And we referred to it a couple of weeks back, because then we saw that, well, some of them didn't like that. They couldn't stand it. Some of them sneered. But others came to faith. You see, when Paul is speaking with his Jewish compatriots, he preaches the the word of God. And he says, this is what our ancestors did. This is what God has promised. When he begins to speak to these Gentiles, these Greeks who know nothing of the Old Testament, he says, like some of your poets say, God is near to each one of us. This unknown God, I'll tell you about him. He's come right down to us. And does the Bible as a whole know anything of this? Look back at Psalm 19, for example. You see, God speaks to the whole world. What does Psalm 19 say? It begins with these words. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Is God at work in Antarctica? Yes. Is God at work in Syria? Yes. Is God at work in Siberia? Yes. Is God at work in any place you want to care to name of this world, God is speaking there. Even if it is only through the sun rising and shining 
on the desert sand or the Arctic snow, God is speaking. Yes, he does speak in a special way through his word. The psalm goes on, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And it does speak about God's law, which is God's special revelation. But even so, God is speaking. A few years ago, my wife and I visited Japan to do with the mission that we were working with. And our, visit, our hosts in Japan, and there were several of them over the two or three months we were there, we went to all sorts of different towns, villages, and one of the things that they did was take us along to the local koen or park. And every time we went to a new place, oh, come down to the park. See, the Japanese people loved their parks, that they would care for them and manage them in all sorts of ways. And what looks like a particular picturesque view had been stage-managed. Uh, beautifully done but you, but you know every time you went round a corner and saw a beautiful view across say a lake or a particularly beautiful tree carefully manicured into shape there will be a little shrine there a Shinto shrine sometimes a Buddhist shrine why? well you see if that little river was so beautiful just at that point there must have been a God who made it so that's the logic if that tree was growing in such a way to look beautiful there must have been a God who made it that way (laughs) so you put a little shrine there and you might put a tin of coke there as an offering I kid you not that was not rubbish that tin of coke was an actual offering to the spirit of that place They take it seriously. But you see, here is Psalm 19, and it says, The heavens declare the glory of who? That little God by the tree? That little God by the river? No, no. The Almighty God. You see, God speaks, and we don't always hear it properly. We don't always understand it, do we? God speaks into our world. And that's how Paul is there in Athens. He speaks about this unknown God. And these days, in a modern society, God is still speaking, but we don't always hear it. There's a need. There's a need for our world to come together in peace. And yet, every movement for peace seems to end in quarrel and misunderstanding. How we need to hear God's voice. To the unknown God. That's the way we speak these days. To people who know, perhaps suspect there's a God somewhere, or hope there is, because in trouble we find that we run to our churches or we run to our shrines and run to our little candles and flowers to somehow remember and try to make peace and we're crying out for something or other to end all of that strife. And we're crying out to that unknown God, Lord, if there, is, if there is a God, please come and do something. And God is speaking all the time. The heavens declare the glory of God. And as Christians, we need to come alongside. Let's move on in Acts. Acts 17, we were there in Athens. Acts chapter 27 now. And we get a storm in a teacup. Well, no, we don't actually. It's a storm in a boat. (laughs) Paul, the apostle, there's lots of events going into this. Paul is falsely charged with a particular offence and is imprisoned and spends at least two years in house arrest. He then appeals to Caesar and has to go to Rome to answer for those charges. And that little map there shows the voyage that he began to take. And if you start on the 
that side, Damascus, you see there in Jerusalem, Caesarea. He goes across north of Cyprus to Myra, to Snidus, and then down to Crete. Yeah, <laughs> glad we got Crete on the map there. <laughs> if you want to know where Peter's going on sabbatical, it's right there, in the middle of the map. <laughs> and here is Paul. I hope you don't have storms like I'm about to describe here. <laughs> here we go. Paul describes their voyage. It's um, a bit of a mishap, to put it lightly. I wonder if we expect our Christian lives to be plain sailing, just because God is with us. Do you know, life is much more complex than that. And these last chapters of Acts describe how Paul reaches Rome. You know, he wanted to go to Rome. He says several times through the epistles and in Acts, his intention is to go to Rome. I don't think he expected to go there under house arrest and as a prisoner and this way he went. And they begin, and they get as far as Crete, and winter's coming on, and it's not good weather for sailing. So they say, well, we can't winter at uh, Lacia and Salmoni. It's not a good harbour. We'll go round the corner to Fair Havens and Phoenix. It's only a short distance. It's like sailing from here into Bournemouth. That's not far, is it? You know, sort of 50, 60 miles, something like that. That's all. Oh, and Acts 27 says, When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. And then this hurricane force wind called the Northeaster came upon them, and on they go. And you see that line right the way across to the left-hand side of the map, and that's Malta. And, well, it's quite a story. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Well, it was just a wooden boat, but can you imagine the danger in doing that in a storm? Passing ropes under the boat? Some of them would get a bit wet, to say the least, just doing that. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven long. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. Now, the owner of the boat was on board, a few verses previously tell us. This is the owner of the boat and he's accepting that he's losing his livelihood in this storm. The cargo, which he relies on to make his money at the end of the journey, is all being chucked overboard for the safety of their journey. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. You know, that's like the things like the spare mast, the spare sail the nuts and bolts and the things that just weigh the boat down. All of that is going overboard to lighten the load. And when neither sun nor stars had appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. That's desperate, isn't it? That's desperate. You know, you, even fiction writers don't always write stories quite like that, do they? And this was an actual event in the life of Paul the Apostle. Perhaps we can take courage from that because we know the story because they all survived. We can take courage when life throws its worst at us and we feel we are in that storm, and we give up hope of being saved, and yet, Christ comes in a vision to that apostle. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Keep up courage, men. I have faith in God that it will happen 
just as he told me. We must run aground on some island. It's all there in Acts 27 and they end up in Malta. They winter there. Miracles take place in Malta through Paul. There's not time to discuss any of that this morning and they eventually sail on and reach Rome. You see, when Jesus said in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, that we should take the gospel to the ends of the earth, he said that he will be with us to the end of the age. That doesn't just mean those nice little Christian occasions when we have fellowship together and have a nice cup of tea. Yes, we've just done that, haven't we? And God was with us and he is with us. But in those stormy occasions, when we have to get down to it as a Christian family, when we have to sit down with others who are going through our own personal hell of a situation, God is with us then as well. I am with you always to the ends of the earth. Can we take courage from that today? Because that is what the whole story of Acts is about. God working miracles, yes. God starting churches in different towns and cities, yes. But most of all, God with us in the extremities of life and calling us to follow him and serve him in those places. And we turn to Acts 28 and, you know, you expect to find a verse something like, you know, God bless you and... uh, do this and do that, but it doesn't end like that. Is there an end to the Acts of the Apostles? It just talks about Paul being two years in Rome in his own rented house and how he is boldly preaching the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus. Well, what happened to Paul? (laughs) Doesn't mention it. We can add a bit, I guess. We can uh, think we think that uh, through other aspects of church history that we can read about that Paul was released and rearrested and eventually was executed for his faith. But Acts as a book is unfinished. Is it the only unfinished book of the scripture? May well be. There's not a line drawn at the end of Acts. There's not a line drawn there. Will you walk with me, forward with me, for a moment? Think about, how did Christianity come to England? How did Christianity come to Scotland, or to Wales, or to Ireland? How did Christianity get into Europe? How did Christianity get into Africa, to South America, to North America, to all sorts of places? Asia. Let's travel with the Lord of time and eternity. We're going to move forward a few centuries. We can walk along Aldersgate Street in London. The gate of that shape isn't there now. That's the gate that was there in the 1700s. Let's listen to a man writing a journal. The year is 1738. George II was on the throne. The date is the 24th of May. The man is John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. We sang one of his brother's hymns just a few moments ago in the service here, Love Divine or Love's Excelling. John Wesley was trying to be a Christian. Previously, he'd gone to America, can't call it the United States because it wasn't the United States then, it was just a series of colonies. But he'd gone to preach to the Indians And he wasn't being very successful at it. And he wrote in his journal, I went to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? He looked within, and he found that he was not in a fit state to preach the gospel. And on that 24th of May, 1738, he describes how he went to a little Moravian chapel in Aldersgate Street. It's number 28, if you ever want to go along there. Not the same building, of course, these days. But as he listened in that little service to someone 
preaching God's word or reading of commentary on God's word, he said, I found my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did believe in Jesus Christ. And from that moment, something happened in John Wesley's life to make him the firebrand to preach the gospel up and down this country in so many places. And he did it in a new kind of way, in the open air. You know, some people, the traditional church, despised this open air preaching of Wesley and others like Whitfield like him. They despised it. Oh, you should come to church. You know, it's got to be done this way. It's got to be done that way. Wesley says, no. I want the people to hear. People who didn't get into church. And people came to faith. Some historians say that this so transformed society in England that there was no need for a revolution such as the French had overthrowing their rulers. We avoided a French Revolution style thing in this country because of the Wesleyan Methodist revival. Because God was at work through John Wesley and then through all those lay preachers who themselves preached Christ. See, it wasn't just John Wesley, Charles Wesley by themselves. It was all those little Methodist classes, all those little groups, those churches, those chapels that they started off. Each of them became a powerhouse of prayer, of faith, of preaching. Yes, we remember Wesley because he was the pioneer. But you know, every little chapel was a powerhouse that ignited the country to seek God. Let's move forward a bit in our TARDIS, our Gospel TARDIS, to London, East London, the 1860s. William Booth and Catherine Booth arrive on the scene. And they are appalled at the poverty, the low moral standards, the general climate. In 1865, the Salvation Army is, for, is formed. See, in those days, people thought that the mission field was darkest Africa. <laughs> William Booth knew better. He wrote a book, In Darkest England, and the way out. And people who were so self-righteous, who felt that, well, we're okay, we've got, we are a Christian country. Hmm. Christianity can only, is sometimes only skin deep. Underneath. We need converting. And in darkest England and the way it was Booth's way of coming and bringing the gospel to transform lives and areas to serve God. In a similar era, we can walk along Brighton Beach. Brighton Beach? What's good about Brighton Beach? We need the next slide for that one. There we go, just stones. If you've ever been to Brighton Beach, it's not like Weymouth Beach, is it? It's, uh, we've got lots of lovely sand and somehow God gave Brighton lots of lovely shingle. And who's the guy in the corner? William Hudson <coughs> Taylor. And what's the city on the right? It's a modern city in China. Taylor, walking along Brighton Beach in the 1860s, wrestling in prayer. What does God want him to do? He's convinced that he must get to China to preach the gospel. And he does so in ways that are so different than the traditional way of doing mission in those days. China Inland Mission, today we call it the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, a pioneering work of God. The church in China these days is a growing movement. Yes, it has its troubles. But God has so blessed the work of people like Booth and Taylor because the Acts of the Apostles are not finished. We move into the 20th century, in the 21st century. George Verwer, for example, Operation Mobilization, the Mercy Ship. Some working these days in the Syrian or other refugee camps. Or think of the vicar of Baghdad, Andrew White, 
right in the centre of where there is hardship and struggle. God's mission didn't start in Acts chapter 2. As we saw, it was from the beginning when God first moved into the world, promises to Abraham, Jonah's mission and promises through Joel. God's mission hasn't ended at Acts 28. It's continuing right now, today, and tomorrow, and the next. The last days, yes, but they don't end until Christ's return. Until he comes. How does that affect me? What about me? What do I do? See, I'm not a pioneer. Most of us here wouldn't call ourselves pioneers for mission, would we? Maybe one or two of us have done different things, but we're not famous like William Booth or John Wesley or people like that or George Verwer. God wants to use each of us, each of you, just where we are. Sometimes God will say to us, now, pack up your home, Go somewhere else. Yes, that happens. Not always. God uses us just where we are. I listened to a lady who had pioneered a church in a small community, small Japanese town. Margaret Marks was her name. And yes, she was part of the mission I worked with. And essentially we start we tried to plant a little church somewhere in the towns of Japan or southern Japan and she said she rented a small home in this town of Tsuda but she didn't start services immediately that wasn't her way she just rented a small home and she began to live in the community and for several months that was all that she did she went shopping and she bought in their shops and spoke with people just about ordinary things, the ordinary ways of life. And one day, one of her neighbours said to her, Marksu Sensei, Miss Marks, we are so glad you've come to Tsuda. And this lady went on to describe in intimate detail what they knew about Margaret. They'd all had their eyes on her. They said, you get up in the morning at such and such a time and then you spend time praying, don't you? <laughs> well, I tell you, Margaret was absolutely flummoxed. <laughs> she hadn't realised how much she had been under the microscope of their attention. And it was in a friendly way because she had been a friend to many of them. Yes, the church did eventually start in that town, but it was because Margaret came there and made herself a friend in that place. In many situations, we just need to be ourselves. We need to be natural. We can all do that. How do Christian pioneers come to faith? How do people like D.L. Moody, the evangelist, like George Verwer, like Billy Graham, come to faith? usually because of the ordinary witness of Christians like you and me. Think of Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. How did he come to faith in Christ? Well, he's on the road to Damascus, yes. You read the story in Acts chapter 9 and when he gives his testimony as well in other places in Acts. But, you know, there is Paul, or Saul as he was, He's been smitten by blindness on the Damascus road and he's been led into Damascus and he's in the house of Judas on Straight Street. And at that moment, the Lord appears to an ordinary disciple, just like you and me, called Ananias. I say, Ananias, old boy, would you mind going along to Judas's house in Straight Street? There's a guy there called Saul. He wants a bit of ministry. I wonder if God actually said it rather like that. Sounds rather casual. And yet, it was just because God was able to use an ordinary man like Ananias, going along as a very surprised Christian. What? Saul of Tarsus? He's come here to kill everyone, every Christian. You go there, Ananias. You go there. Ananias does go. And 
the Christian history of the church was changed because Ananias, an ordinary Christian like you and me, was obedient to God's voice. That's how we can all do mission. Those little conversations, those ordinary events, being transformed by Christ. You see, the challenge is how Christ-like are we? We know we fail miserably sometimes, but as a Christian, even the way we apologise or make restitution or forgive others can be a witness. And we must do God's work by letting God do his work in us. And let's just move on to the next slide there. You see, because we are reflecting God's glory. Do you believe that? When you go to work tomorrow, when you go on holiday, when you spend time with others, you are reflecting the glory of God. Why? Because God lives within us. Christ's Spirit lives within us. We with unveiled face all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Don't you desire that for yourself? Don't you desire that for us as a church? We were singing earlier, Lord, let your glory fall. Yeah, Lord, let your glory fall. Fill this place. Fill our hearts. Fill our minds. Let's reflect the Lord's glory with unveiled face. And we must let God do his work in us. We aren't in it by ourselves. And do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. You see, that's a choice we can make. We could say to ourselves, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm going to do it day by day. That's the choice we make. But it comes to fruition by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then we test and approve what God's will is. How transformed are we? You see, all those people in Acts, they were transformed people. All those other people that we just talked about briefly were transformed people. That's not what made them famous though. It's they were they were rather they weren't the only ones who were transformed. It's people like you and me. They were brought to faith because other ordinary Christians were also the transformed people. And I asked the music group to come and join me and Peter to come up in a moment and we'll conclude the service but you know the challenge as we come to Acts to the ends of the earth is the fact that we need that transforming power of God in our lives just where we are do we reflect God's glory Lord make me reflect your glory just where I am.